Uh, thanks very much, David, and uh, uh, thank you all for being here to listen to me uh, today um, talking in a slightly more obscurantist vein, I, I, I must say. Well, I hope it's not, but maybe. Um, just to introduce, to give you some background, for several years I've been working uh, with African, largely African migrants in three European cities, London, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, and exploring the dynamic interplay between external circumstances and inner lives. How certain people negotiate and respond to the new world in which they have been thrown, how they reimagine and relate to the places and people they have left behind, and how they see their future. This complex consciousness of competing demands, conflicting allegiances, and incommensurable values often engenders deep uncertainty and dissoci dissociation. And I have been struck by the parallels between a migrant's struggle to achieve a sense of security and stability and my own anthropological struggles to render coherent accounts of their lives. What I want to do today is argue that the migrant's experience of uncertainty and insecurity of being out of place and somehow illegitimate, even when they have found work and acquired a work permit, bears an interesting relationship to the anthropologist's uncertainty over the relationship between life as lived and explanatory models or narratives that he or she constructs in making that living reality intelligible. There is, in other words, an uncanny connection between a migrant struggling to negotiate the legal labyrinths and bureaucratic protocols of a European nation state and an anthropologist struggling to ne negotiate the academic jargons, conceptual frameworks, and intellectual fashions that dominate his or her profession. I'm often troubled by the degree to which human beings become so captivated by category thinking that they forget or dismiss from their minds any experience that cannot be readily categorized. William James reminds us that, to quote him, reality, life, experience, concreteness, immediacy, use what word you will, exceeds our logic, overflows, and surrounds it. As such, he goes on to say, our fields of experience have no more definite boundaries than have our fields of view. And yet anthropology, like all epistemologies, scientific or otherwise, delights in drawing distinctions between radically different life worlds, societies, or states of mind, exaggerating differences and downplaying common features. As ethnos takes precedence over anthropos, anthropology becomes the study of human differences so that even the concept of the human condition is seen as a specific construct of Western modernity and hence analytically limited. In its preoccupation with what makes us unalike rather than like, anthropology readily plays into the hands of state policymakers for whom our humanity is defined by our citizenship, wealth, ethnicity, age or gender. But every migrant poses for policymakers and anthropologists the vexed ethical question 
to what extent our humanity is determined by our membership of a specific society and to what extent it is determined by our shared humanity, which in my talk today um, consists in the multiplex character of selfhood. Something I take to be incontestably universal. When anthropologists and social theorists write about migration, they often invoke binaries, speaking of divided selves and double binds, of halfies, hybrids, and being in between. Subjective conflicts are said to mirror social crises, also described in binary terms, and suggesting radical breaks between autocratic and democratic regimes, political and occult economies, an orientation toward the past and an orientation toward the future. But to describe the self as, and I'm quoting a, a particular writer here, as torn between self-interest and collective good, struggling over desire and responsibility, negotiating contradictory emotions, may all too easily give the impression that human beings find little satisfaction in their mutability and prefer the illusion of a unitary and stable sense of self. Rather than imply that people necessarily find fulfillment in being settled in one place or possessing a single core identity, I consider it imperative that we complement this view of a stable self with descriptions of human improvisation, experimentation, opportunism, and existential mobility, showing that individuals often struggle not to align their lives with given moral or legal or cultural norms, but to find ways of negotiating the ethical space between external constraints and personal imperatives. This capacity for strategic shape-shifting, both imaginative and actual, defines, in my view, our humanity, or is characteristic of our humanity. So I find it ironic that most of the writers who invoke images of psychological division and historical discontinuity would not wish to make a case for static, one-dimensional personalities or monocultural societies in which nothing and no one changed. Why then should we not embrace the view that a pluralistic universe, again to use William James's term, applies equally to both polis and persons, to state and to selves? Recent psychoanalytic work on the self challenges the concept of the person as a seamless, stable, skin-encapsulated monad. Rather than being constant, we constantly change, like chameleons, according to our surroundings. And we possess an extraordinary capacity to feel like oneself while being many. Indeed, our ability to shift and adjust our self-state in response to who we are with, to what circumstance demands, and to what our well-being seems to require, is not only adaptive, our lives would be impossible without it. This conception of the self as several rather than singular has a long history. In 1580, Michel Montaigne observed that anyone who turns his prime attention onto himself 
will hardly find himself in the same state twice. We, we've got to forgive his um, gender-biased language here. He goes on to say, every sort of contradiction can be found in me, depending on some twist or attribute. There is nothing I can say about myself as a whole, simply and completely, without intermingling and admixture. We are fashioned out of oddments, put together. We are entirely made up of bits and pieces, woven together so diversely and so <laughs> shapelessly that each one of them pulls its own way at every moment. And there is as much difference between us and ourselves as there is between us and other people. In that single sentence, for me, is encapsulated the project of contemporary anthropology. In 1928, Virginia Woolf touched on the same theme, observing that the selves of which we are built up, one on top of another, as plates are piled on a waiter's hand, have little constitutions and rights of their own. One will only come if it is rain, one will only come if it is raining, another will emerge only in a room with green curtains, another when Mrs. Jones is not there, another if you can promise it a glass of wine, and so on. Everybody can multiply from his own experience the different terms with which his different selves have made with him, and some are too wildly ridiculous to be mentioned in print at all. These writers touch on what I have elsewhere called the migrant imaginary. To capture the idea that this kind of imagination of alternative ways of being or thinking or feeling or interacting with others is just not a characteristic of people we think of as migrants, it's characteristic of all people, many of whom don't think of themselves as migrants and like to draw essentialistic contrasts between themselves and people they characterize as migrants. This human capacity for calling forth or bringing to the forefront of consciousness hitherto backgrounded aspects of ourselves in dealing with changing situations. Psychological multiplicity and dissociation are not therefore problems that require therapy returning us to a one-dimensional stable state that is continuous and consistent over time and in all circumstances, it is the creative and adaptive expression of sociality itself. Let us consider three closely related aspects of this adaptability. Adapting to other people, adapting to other societies or forms of life, and adapting to changes in our own life course. While the first aspect involves being affectively moved in relation to other selves, the second involves movement from place to place, while the third aspect covers the critical transitions that mark our passage through life. Our capacity for being other in relation to other selves is the basis for mutual recognition and empathy. It is the suppressed aspects of ourselves, seldom fully acknowledged and often actively abhorred, that enable us to find common ground with people who initially appear so radically different from us that we sometimes hesitate to call them human. 
Indeed, this capacity to see others in the light of normally occluded aspects of ourselves may, under certain circumstances, help us recognize animals and objects as sharing in the being we ordinarily attribute solely to ourselves. Thus, recent researchers have identified the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder in African elephants, whose herds have been decimated by culls, illegal poaching, and habitat loss. Calves that have witnessed the killing of their mothers and female caretakers, or have lacked male socialization, show abnormal startle responses, depression, unpredictable social, asocial behavior, and hyperaggression the same cluster of traits that we observe in human beings that have undergone similar traumatic losses. The psychoanalytic anthropologist George Devereux has argued for the psychic unity of humankind in just these terms, that every individual contains the potential of every man, creative as well as destructive, and that what is foregrounded in one person or made normative in one society will exist in a subdominant, repressed, or potential form in another person or another society. Our capacity for becoming other in relation to other selves also explains the persistence with which human beings from time immemorial have moved, migrated, and mutated, adjusting to radically new circumstances despite the risks involved, the losses incurred, and the suffering undergone. One of the commonest experiences of encountering a complete stranger, or moving from a familiar to an unfamiliar environment, or in passing from one phase of one's life to another, is disorientation. This cognitive bewilderment is variously and viscerally experienced as vertigo, nausea, nostalgia, and exhaustion. I'm the empty stage, writes Fernando Pessoa, where various actors act out various plays, living the lives of various people, both on the outside, seeing them, and on the inside, feeling them. In this dissociated state, selves that were previously foregrounded are no longer affirmed by others as normal or even as natural or they no longer serve one's immediate interests. The person you once reviled may now be the person on whom you depend for recognition and succor. You may have become an adult, but the child in you cries out for comfort. You have arrived in Rome and are trying to do as the Romans do, but you crave, if only for a moment, to be able to eat your own food in your own home with your own kith and kin. No shift in self-states is straightforward. To be in transition is to be in doubt and adrift, and to experience dissociation, to suddenly discover that one has become a stranger to oneself. As Ibrahim Wadriegu, a friend from Bukona Faso, put it, <coughs> reflecting on his first bewildering days in Amsterdam, you cannot do everything you want to do. There are, <clears throat> there are always rules that will stop you crossing borders, stop you going where you want to go, stop you finding an easier path. It's papers that count, not words. No one trusts anything you say. You can't talk to people directly. You've got to have papers. Even if the papers are false, they will count more than your words. 
there is no more truth in words. Cyrillonian friends in London confessed similar consternation as they struggled to negotiate the labyrinths of a bureaucratic state. In West Africa, one's destiny was determined by a network of face-to-face -face relationships with people to whom you were obliged or who were under obligation to you, <clears throat> people whom in local parlance you could beg or from whom you could borrow money, expect a meal or a roof over your head. But in Europe, one quickly discovers that one has passed from a patrimonial to a bureaucratic regime in which power resides less in people to whom one can appeal than in an impersonal force field that finds expression in a stranger's stare, a policeman's orders, a supervisor's demands, or the letter of the law. In this inscrutable and Kafkaesque world of bureaucratic protocols, indecipherable documents, abstract rules, and official forms of validation, one comes up against what Michael Hertzfeld has called the social production of indifference. The living spirit of community has given ground to the dead letter of the law that recognizes no one because it is nobody. This is not a matter of being between two worlds, but of being dismembered, a, a word I'm hyphenating here um, as uh, Barbara Meyerhoff uh, did in her famous essay on membership, thinking of a group as like a body that has different members and can be dismembered or remembered. <clears throat> so this is not a matter of being between two worlds, but of being dismembered, of no longer being fully integrated into a familiar community. And so the migrant is obliged to remember himself, to assemble or reassemble like a bricoleur from the various aspects of his past and present selves a new assemblage. Thus, Ibrahim oscillates between a concern for his father's expectations of him, his mother's wishes for him, his wife and daughter in Holland, and his personal ambition to become better educated, moving continually between these self-states and ways of framing his sense of himself, each of which is associated with a different country a different period in his life, a different kind of loyalty, and a different kind of person. In London, my friends say, Wakorama found alcohol abuse problematic. As a Muslim, and out of respect for his beloved father, Sewa preferred not to drink, even though this seriously compromised his English social life. How could he drink beer with friends in his apartment when his father's photograph on the wall was a stern reminder of his lack of filial respect? There's one thing my father never wants any of his kids to do, say was said on one occasion, and that is drink alcohol. When I go out and drink alcohol, as soon as I come home and step into my room and see that picture, I have to run out of the room again. I want to go and take the picture and put it away, like in my cupboard or box, but I know I have alcohol in my system, so I cannot touch the picture. I have to wait for days, days, to take that picture and put it somewhere so I can walk into my room and not see it straight away. I know it's just a picture, but it's like it's him seeing me, what I'm doing, you know. You see, I've got all these beliefs. And when I stop drinking, 
pray to him, ask him for forgiveness, I know that's the only thing I'm doing that my dad's unhappy about. Sewa's English girlfriend suggested that Sewa hang the photo of his father in the living room, now bare, except for a small lacquered plywood map of Sierra Leone in which different seeds, sesame, millet, mustard, chili, and several species of rice had been glued to mark the different provinces. But I can't put pictures in the sitting room, uh, Sewa said. I can't imagine myself sitting here, holding a beer, drinking, when my dad's picture is looking at me. So that's what's stopping me putting the picture up. I can't live in a house where friends will come and want to drink and my dad is seeing me. I just can't do that. I feel I'm doing the wrong thing that if he doesn't want to do, that, that he doesn't want me to do, even though he's not alive in the real world, I just don't want to do that. <clears throat> but you've made so many changes in your life, I said, since coming to England. Big changes. It's true, Mr. Michael. Sometimes I can't believe myself. Despite the anguish Sayer felt as he tried to work out new configurations and compromises in his lifestyle, he did not fall apart. This is because, as Philip Bromberg says, the psychoanalytic writer on, on whom I'm relying a lot here, a multiple self is not incompatible with normal mental functioning because a person can access simultaneously a range of discrete self-states that despite their contrasting and even opposing perspectives on personal reality are able to engage in internal dialogue. It is this capacity that permits oppositional aspects of self to coexist in consciousness as potentially resolvable intrapsychic conflict. I find this very, very perceptive because it helps understand, at least for me, the way novelists work, where you create a set of characters that you put into interaction. This, in a sense, is an objective expression of what Bromberg is talking about as an intrapsychic um, way in which we are constantly working. So the characters in a work of fiction are all transpositions of the selves that um, exist in some minor or major um, form within oneself. It may, however, be more accurate to speak of multitasking than mul multiple selves, since the possession of a repertoire of potential social or practical skills does not necessarily mean that we are composed of several discrete identities. In other words, the limit is not simply where things disintegrate and the perennial possibility arises of being born again, it is where we are driven to intense experimentation, searching for a strategy or skill, object or ally that will help us overcome an obstacle, regain a sense of agency, or perform a seemingly impossible task. The migrant exemplifies, therefore, a vital aspect of every person's passage through life an ability to change with changing circumstances, conjuring multiple mindsets and calling upon multiple means for addressing multiple challenges. Writes Stephen Mitchell, another psychoanalytic writer, this view of self as multiple and discontinuous is grounded in a temporal rather than spatial metaphor. 
Selves are what people do and experience over time rather than something that exists someplace. <coughs> Thus, despite his encounters with racism in Denmark, a Ugandan friend, Emmanuel Munamina, made a conscious choice not to see himself as African, but to redouble his efforts to apply for work on the strength of his academic qualifications and personal qualities. My fieldwork among migrants also brought me into contact with a Mexican student at Harvard who had <coughs> converted to Pentecostalism as he crossed the border into the United States only to be picked up and deported before attempting the crossing again. But as Roberto shared his story with me, I noticed that his recourse to religion occurred at those moments when he found himself at the limits of what he could endure thrown into a prison cell on one occasion among drunks and derelicts, or facing another day of thankless labor in the fields. Though the police or field bosses treated him like shit because he was Mexican, Roberto negotiated his situation in his own terms, sometimes bringing his Christianity to the forefront of his consciousness, sometimes not referring to his faith at all. I mean, you can see here why I, I don't like the ontological turn very much, because it tends to give us a picture as somehow ontologically stuck in a particular frame which is culturally determined, and, uh, and there is no kind of mobility, um, even though there is the appearance of, uh, of multiplicity. Human ex existence implies continual readjustment and revision in our memories and imaginations, as well as in our lived relationships with others and our environment. Roberto suppresses his Mexican past, the better to focus on the exigencies of his present American situation. Emmanuel represses the anger that still boils up in him when he thinks of the abuse he suffered as a child, the better to meet the needs of his daughter. In many ways, this mobility and mutability of self-awareness is both phylogenetically and ontogenetically crucial to what we call adaptability. To live, again, uh, quoting Fernando Pessoa, to live is to be other. What moves, lives. No wonder, then, that I found in the experiences of the migrants I met in Europe and America dramatic analogues of my experience as an ethnographer where an ability to improvise and play with new possibilities of action and thought, experimenting with alternative modes of consciousness, not only defines the condition of the possibility of knowing others, but perhaps more pertinently, offers a key to achieving viable coexistence in a pluralistic world. <coughs> a thirsty self. <laughs> <coughs> The search for well-being involves a constant shifting of self-states and an unflagging process of trial and error. But this search entails more than a desire for material improvement or adaptive advantage. It is informed, at least for me, by an existential imperative to live life on one's own terms, not just on terms imposed from without. Though we are bound by the rules and roles visited upon us by being born in a particular place at a particular time and into a particular family, we also seek to reconfigure our lives within 
and sometimes without these circumscriptions and constraints, particularly at times of crisis and transition. There is a profound connection between the unsettling experiences of limitation that marks the early life of the migrants I worked with and their yearning to escape and begin a wholly different life for themselves elsewhere. Norman O'Brown calls this the Oedipal Project, um, a way of getting the notion of the Oedipal Complex away from the Freudian emphasis on sexuality uh, and desire, an existential imperative for Brown to discover and create one's own ground, as he puts it, objectifying oneself in a form other than the form first defined for one by parents, tradition, or circumstance. This process of becoming a person in one's own right is, however, characterized by a tension that is never fully resolved, for the desire to become autonomous is countermanded by a yearning to be, independent, to be dependent. The desire to do what one wants is no less urgent than the desire for limits, and the dream of a more fulfilling life for oneself comes up against one's sense of responsibility for and indebtedness to others. This was vividly shown in Ibrahim's remarks about the difficulty of respecting his parents' wishes when his heart was set on a life beyond the horizons of his natal village. Every independent step away from their world increased the burden of guilt, the feeling that one was betraying one's father and mother and that this betrayal would bring ill fortune upon him. I'm sorry, I'm speaking now of Ibrahim. The same dilemma sometimes oppressed Roberto, who once confided, our stories are not success stories. They are overshadowed by guilt, survivor guilt. And I was reminded of those <coughs> passages in Primo Levi's Drowned and the Saved, where he repudiates the idea of providence and speaking of the blind luck that determines the difference between drowning and being saved, reminds us of the terrible burden every survivor bears that he, to quote Levy, might be alive in the place of another at the expense of another, and that he must, for as long as he lives, atone for this injustice. For more than 40 years, my fieldwork among the Koranko of Northeast Sierra Leone has provided me with culturally specific examples of how this dialectic between home and away plays out in everyday life. While one's social identity is determined patrilineally and one's physiological essence um, supposedly stems solely from one's father's semen, one's destiny may depend as much upon one's mother and mother's brother as on one's father and his brothers. This counterpoint between a space dominated by rules and a space of greater informality, affection and playfulness finds expression in the contrast between one's father's place, the place where one was born and raised, and one's mother's place, the home of one's mother's brothers. This tension between the patriarchal law of the father and the loving care of the mother not only informs the intersubjective life of the family, but finds expression in images of the polis, since rulers, whether local or national, are expected to embody the power to administer the law of the land as well as the power to protect and care for their subjects. 
When Karanko say they are in the hands of a chief or power holder, the metaphor is double-edged, since they are at once subject to his whims, under his thumb, at his mercy, and in his debt. Among the Koranku, the dialectic of obligation and choice is evident in the interplay between village and bush. For while the village is often associated, particularly by the youth of today, with oppressive limitations, the bush signifies an encompassing, dangerous, yet potentially liberating space in which social norms are placed in abeyance, social boundaries are transgressed, and miraculous transformations undergone. The bush is an imagined elsewhere, a transitional space in which the socio-moral ties of the town can be loosened and a person experience his relations with others in transcendental terms, mediated by music, drugs, palm wine, sexual pleasure, money, friendship, spirit possession, laughter, love, magical mobility, and even the promise of eternity these days. But just as the achievement of independence carries the responsibility to provide for those who brought one into the world, so any gains won in the wilderness must be shared with the community from which one originally set forth. And that dilemma, of course, carries over into the kind of um, the, the guilt that many migrants feel. Am I remitting enough money home? Am I fulfilling my obligations to my kin back home? Um, and just not kind of advancing my own interests in the country that I've traveled to. A corollary of the Oedipal project that is, is that it is paradoxically by suffering the actions of others that one realizes one's own capacity for action. Only the dutiful and subservient son can hope to receive his father's blessings and eventually take his place. And in traditional initiation, it is the neophyte's unflinching response to the ordeals visited upon him by his elders that proves his right to be given the power to act in kind as an autonomous subject. In this sense, migration is a kind of initiation, for in both cases, suffering is the price paid for the privilege of fully realizing one's own right to possess a life worth living. To be subdued by circumstances one cannot change, acted upon, yet powerless to act, may be bearable if there is the hope or promise of some reward for one's pains, a return on one's suffering. If, despite one's patience, no amelioration of one's situation is forthcoming, it is all too easy to believe that one's life has been unfairly taken away and that one is therefore owed a new lease of life in lieu of the life one has lost. This is true of people whose social circumstances condemn them to passivity and degradation, their voices unheard, their agency denied. It is even more painfully evident when historical events such as war, famine, poverty, dispossession, and epidemic illness strip people of the wherewithal of life, leaving them little option but to search for well-being elsewhere. But in migrating, one effectively places one's life in parenthesis. One suspends one's ties to one world in order to open oneself up to another. It is for this reason that both migration and initiation may be seen as expressions of the Oedipal project 
whereby one severs ties with one's one life world in, a, in order to forge quite different ties with another. But a logic of sacrifice is entailed here. For without the sacrifice of what one has, one cannot hope to be filled with what one does not yet have, though this something missing remains an abstract utopia of which one can only dream. It is this sense of hope as possibility or potentiality, this sense that more lies in store for us than less, that is central to human existence and defines the field of ethical struggle. Ethics explores the strategies, both real and imaginary, whereby we seek to augment our sense of life as forthcoming, promising, and renewable. It is vital, however, that our ethnographies of migrant lives do justice to the complex mix of motives and imperatives that influence the decision, which is not always a conscious decision at all, to migrate. One can agree with Ernst Bloch that something is missing in a person's life, making him or her feel empty, dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and incomplete. But exactly what will satisfy this <coughs> inchoate need is seldom clear to the person who experiences it. Inchoate, amorphous, and volatile, one's will to exist fastens or focuses opportunistically on various objects, some actually at hand, some absent, some wholly fantastic, in a search to objectify or consummate oneself in the world. But unlike reality testing, the imagination always goes beyond what the world actually is, or any person can actually be. Money begins as a substitute for life. But many other things beside money can give momentary form to the vague sense of what will make good the lack in one's life. When a migrant speaks of a quest for a better life, we cannot presume to know what this life may be. Utopia, need we remind ourselves, means no place. My informant's narratives disclose the ever-changing variety of things that have been lost or gone missing or not yet been found, and without which one's life is profoundly impaired. An absent parent, a lost home, a lack of food, money, mobility, or companionship, while at the same time suggesting that dreams are seldom realized. All this was vividly borne home to me one morning as a Roberto and I talked about our childhood longings to go beyond the physical and social horizons that circumscribed, circumscribed our childhoods. For as long as I can remember, Roberto said, the world presented itself to me as a question. It's a wonder he didn't become an anthropologist. <laughs> he became a theologian. One unusually clear morning in Mexico, when he was a small child, Roberto saw a volcano on a distant horizon. By the time he shared his vision with his family, the volcano could no longer be seen, and he was told that he must have seen something else or made a mistake. What makes some of us so fascinated with what lies beyond us, I asked. When Roberto described how his mother had always yearned for a better life, 
I realized that my own yearnings were in many ways born of my own mother's thwarted dreams to receive an education, to travel, to enlarge her horizons, and that the same continuity of a vision of elsewhere informed Emmanuel's story and was summed up in Ibrahim's comment. From age seven, I wanted to go elsewhere. You feel it inside. You can't give words to it, but it's a strong feeling to go to a big town to move elsewhere. This view that the world as given is not enough or is too confining and its corollary that one must choose another world for oneself, cultivating one's own garden rather than working on one's father's farm, entails a double bind that every migrant experiences in some measure, yet speaks to us all, caught as we inevitably are between the circumstances that shape our lives and the lives we project and hope to create for ourselves. Thank you.